Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Talk. It's the rapid fire version. I feel like we've been doing these a lot on Fridays, and I feel like we need to come up with a name for it, like Friday Flash or the Friday Friday Night Friday. Fights, Furious Fridays. Friday Fights could be good because we do do a lot of fighting on the show. Well, when we do the it podcast. right, we do a lot that's, of fighting. Yeah, that's true. When we're, when we're doing it well, there's fighting involved. Uh, I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com. He's Stephen Means. Doug Maurice wrapping up his furlough this week. We'll be back with us next week. Although if you listen to the Market Down Monday pod, you're going to get half of us and half also including Doug. So the first half will include Doug's opinion on, on the question we asked our tech subscribers. When will Michigan beat Ohio State again? We asked everybody to give us a season and a reason, and we got some great responses. I'm really looking for you guys – if, if you've been skipping the podcast and we've been giving it to you five days a week, I, I sort of understand. We've been throwing a lot at you. I would listen to Monday. I think there's some good stuff from the three of us in the first half of that podcast. And some of our subscribers gave fantastic answers, either some insight into what they're seeing in Ohio State and relative to that rivalry here for the next couple of years. And then some of you who just really dug deep and gave us some creative, fun answers about the distant future of when you think this rivalry might end. So definitely check out that pod. It'll be up first thing Monday morning. Really excited about that. Today we are going to blow through a bunch of topics. We've been doing this recently. We've got like uh, eight or nine topics here we're going to get through. And uh, we appreciate you guys who are sending these in, guys and gals. I hope no one's offended that I use the colloquial guys so often. Apologies if you are. But all of you who are sending in these these, uh, questions, we really appreciate it. 614-350-3315. You can sign up there. $3.99 a month after a 14-day free trial is how you sign up. All right, so this week on Rapid Fire Questions, we had mostly football questions, a lot of specific to Ohio State, some branching out. We had a couple of goofy ones. We're going to mix everything in and just get right into it. Now, now Doug has been giving us a five-minute window when there's three of us. I think we can probably beat that. I'm going to say no more than four minutes on each of these topics. We get in, 
we give our insight, we get out, we move on to the next topic. Steven, do you think we can do that? I believe we can. No, I, I'm willing to bet a paycheck on it. Not really. I'm not going to actually do it, but I'd be willing to do it if somebody asked me to. Wow. Okay. Well, I will take your bet of one paycheck that we will be <laughs> under four minutes on each question, and then I'll just talk for four minutes and one second <laughs> right. on the first question. <laughs> just to overdo it. That was the easiest money I've ever made. <laughs> All right. Well, now that, uh, now that I'm rolling in it, let's get right into it. Uh, our first question comes from the 816. Which player... Ohio State player, they're asking, is most likely to take home a college football award this year. I'm going with Josh Myers winning the Remington Trophy. That's a trophy given to the best center in the country annually. You know, obviously, we have, or Ohio State has Justin Fields coming back as a Heisman Trophy finalist and a, someone who won, you know, Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year and was a, a finalist for a number of other awards. It was certainly going to be on the short list for all the major quarterback awards. You've got... Wyatt Davis coming back as a consensus All-American, someone who I think will probably be in a good position to repeat that, if not push for unanimous All-American status. Ohio State typically produces guys like that. You've got, I guess, the possibility of receiver awards, although I would talk, you know, go back a couple weeks to when we talked about how tough that is at Ohio State because they don't necessarily put guys out there and just give them all the reps. They, the way they cycle guys through – the numbers are important, unfortunately, in those votings. That may be tough for them. Obviously, an unproven defensive line. A lot of linebackers, but not guys who have been like national star level linebackers, more like system linebackers, guys who do their job well for Ohio State. And then Sean Wade in the secondary and a lot of unproven guys there. So that's really, I guess, before you start talking about special teams, then I guess you're throwing in, you know, um, you've got a couple of returning veteran guys there too, who could be in the mix for those kinds of awards, the grows awards and whatever goes along. So Steven, who do you pick as the most likely national award for Ohio state in 2020? So when you just think about it for two seconds, after reading the question, you probably say Justin Fields, just because there's the, he has the largest variety of awards he can win, whether it's a Heisman, Maxwell, Walter camp, Johnny Unitas, Davey O'Brien, but usually if a quarterback is winning the Heisman, he's probably winning all those other awards well as well outside of Kyler Murray in 2018, who won the Heisman, but Tua won the Walter Camp, the Maxwell Award, and Kyler Murray also took home the Davey O'Brien Award and the United Trophy went to Gunnar Minshew. So, but usually if the a quarterback is winning the Heisman, he's probably winning those other three or four awards that quarterbacks can win as well. So then I went to the Outland Trophy, which is where Wyatt Davis comes in. You've already mentioned – Consistence All-American. He might be the best guard in the country and the highest-ranked guard in the NFL draft, the highest, the best prospect as far as guards are concerned in the NFL draft for 2021, a former five-star guy who was the number one offensive guard in his class in 2017, one of the few five-star guys left from that class, along top 50 guys from that class left, along with Baron Browning and Josh Myers. But I think he's going to be in a position to maybe take home that award as a guy who's also a unanimous all-American and gets a tree in Buckeye Grove, but also takes home that award. I wanted to kind of – go ahead. Interesting thing, he'd be the first Ohio State player to do it since Orlando Pace in 1996. But also, part of it is when you talk about the hype, Sean Wade's probably going to have some similar hype as a guy who might be a top-10 pick in 2021 NFL draft and one of the best corners in the country. But he's also going to be playing in a second day where he's clearly the only guy with you know major experience, and he's playing in, a, in the Big Ten where – there aren't a lot of, you know, 
teams in the Big Ten who are great passing teams. And so he might run into a similar situation that Jeff Okuda ran into where Jeff Okuda was clearly the best cornerback in college football last year, and the NFL draft proved that. But, you know, an SEC guy, Greg Gilbert, ended up taking home that award because, one, he had the hype coming into it, but also just more opportunities to get, to get you know, targeted, even as a safety. While with Jeff Okuda, he wasn't getting targeted, and he was doing – the, the most he could with those small amount of targets. And I think Jeff, uh, John Wade might run into a similar situation as Jeff Okuda, while with Wyatt Davis, it's very simple. If they're run blocking, maul your guy over. If they're pass blocking, keep your guy away from the quarterback. And he did a pretty good job of that in 2019. So, okay, so you're taking Wyatt Davis to win the Allen Trophy presented to the best interior offensive lineman. Now, that does include tackles. And Panay Sewell from Oregon won that award last year and is coming back. But you knew that and you're standing by that answer. I understand my answer. And part of it is it's really hard to repeat with national awards. Panay Sewell is great. He's probably going to be the first tackle taken off the board in the NFL draft and maybe the first non-quarterback taken in the NFL draft in 2021. But it's hard to repeat with, as a winner for national awards. And so and, and to that point, he's going to have this hype. But so is Wyatt Davis. And they're going to be in similar positions except, you know, why Davis plays, for, and they're going to have a chance. They're playing each other this year, so we're going to get to see them both live and up in person. Hopefully, if there's a season, but I just think you know, why Davis might have that edge is because it's a little, it's difficult to repeat. I do think it's difficult to repeat, and I was ready to pick Why Davis until I double checked that tackles were involved with that award, and they were. I saw Panay Sula was returning, and it gave me just enough hesitation that I followed our texter's best guess and said. Josh Myers winning the Remington trophy. And I think part of it, it helps that you're getting the preseason attention that this Ohio state offensive line is already getting, uh, you know, why Davis is, is maybe at the top of that list. It, I think it's completely probable, not plausible, probable, however you want to say it possible. We just, we've been having that debate too much on this podcast recently. <laughs> maybe we just need to uh, abolish those words altogether and, and uh, get a thesaurus out. It's very possible that you're right and why Davis wins that award this year would not surprise me at all. But with Panay Sewell, when you have already won the award and you are considered the best at what you do in college football by a wide variety of people, whether it's true or not, that is a large thing for everybody else to try to overcome. And I think Ohio, Oregon's going to still have a pretty strong season. I think he'll be seen as a big reason why you're breaking in a new quarterback there, et cetera. So I went with Josh Myers. I feel like he's the guy. I think he's going to have the season in terms of recognition and accomplishment and everything that Wyatt Davis had in 2019. I think Josh Myers was recognized as being a good football player. I don't know that he was elevated on the national level the way Wyatt Davis was. Obviously he wasn't. He wasn't a consensus All-American the same way Wyatt Davis was. I think this is a year where he gets pushed up to that level. And, and those two guys are seen as kind of a combo. And I, that may in some ways additionally work against Wyatt Davis. I don't know. But it, it just it, it's going to help get Josh Myers' name out there for awards like this. And, uh, you know, Ohio State also has a reputation for producing centers. I think that helps in this case, too. I think the people who vote for these, as we've talked about with these awards before, you, you're looking over kind of like a wide, a wide spectrum of things. It's very hard to, to be detailed on every single guy on the ballot. I think it's going to be the back of people's minds that Ohio State is known for producing some pretty good centers. And I, I think he can win that award this year. I don't know if that has anything to do because Ohio State's known for producing players in a lot of different positions who, you know, 
Chase Young's not the first, you know, top five draft pick in defensive in the defensive line for Ohio State, and yet he's the only one who's run won all those defensive national defensive player of the year awards last year. You know, Jeff Jeff Okuda is not the first, you know, big time defensive back to come out of Ohio State, and yet he didn't win the Thorpe Award. I don't know if their reputation plays that big of a role. I just think Penesul winning it last year, there's a certain standard he has to hit. So if he has a bad game, I think it hurts him more than it would hurt Wyatt Davis as a guy where it's like, okay, Wyatt Davis is coming. He's ready to pop this year. While with Panay Sewell, he, he popped last year. And so now it's, you know, anything – it's almost, it's almost you know, like – it's like if, if you win the Heisman Award. It's why – win the Heisman Award. Let's just say – Jameis Winston won the Heisman in 2013 and he came back and he wasn't nearly – he wasn't as good next year. But some of that is he's already got the Heisman standard. Lamar Jackson arguably might have been better – in 2017 when he won the Heisman in 2016, then when he won the Heisman in 2016. But because he's already got the Heisman name, Heisman as a part of his name, he's got to be above and beyond good in order to repeat with that award. I think Panay Sewell has to be the same way where he can't just be as good as he was last year and repeat. He has to be historically good, which is, you know, now you're talking Orlando Pace. Your your point is uh, a valid one about having to live up to the standard. I think that might be a little bit less so uh, at offensive line because I feel like people don't steady offensive line and assess offensive line. When I say people, I mean people who vote. I mean people like us who True. vote for these awards. That's I feel like they don't have that kind of detailed assessment of that position. So if you're a receiver who, or especially a quarterback, if you're a quarterback who's not having that good of a season or or has a bad game on in a national way, or you're a corner who gets burned on two big plays all season those are the only two plays you get burned on but th- that costs you that kind of a t- I can see that argument I think it's probably less so on the offensive line but I I, I think your point's a valid one I want to run down these real quick we're going past the four minutes but who cares I'm um, going to run down these real quick and just get a quick yes or no from us could Ohio State have a finalist at these awards in 2020 Bednarik or Nagurski Chase Young won both of those last year best defensive player in the country do you think Ohio State could have a finalist this year no. I agree. I do not think they will. Uh, the Blitnikoff Award for Best Receiver. <laughs> not in 2020, maybe 2021. I think you're right. I think we had this exact debate about Garrett Wilson and yeah. that the numbers – it's just going to be tough, I think, to get him specifically alone as an individual the numbers you would need. But Which I, is interesting because his quarterback talent in 2020 is going to be better than what it is in 2021. So it's almost as if you're wishing he was the third. He would. He is where he's going to be next in 2021 and 2020 because then it would make this an easier yes or no question. Uh, the Butkus Award for Best Linebacker. Oh, no. Even with the 10 sacks that you're predicting for Baron Browning? I think that was an extreme thing, though. That's just, you know. I, oh, I agree it was an extreme thing, but yeah, you did say it. I did you did put it. your name on it. it. You I did, did mark it down. Mark it down Monday. <laughs> It's in ink. It's been you know tattooed. What? Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb for Baron Browning and say, yeah, he's a finalist. Every Monday after the pod drops, we get together and give each other tattoos of the prediction we just made. We do. And that's on. That's, that's burned in ink forever. It's branded there. Yeah, I'm going to go. And Baron so- Browning is going to be a finalist for the, for, for the Buckets Award. I'm going out on a limb. Okay, I'm, I'm going to say no. Uh, the Davey O'Brien Award for the best yes. quarterback. I yes. think they'll absolutely be a finalist uh, for that. Uh, Doak Walker Award for running back. No. Agree. National Coach of the Year, or that's the Eddie Robinson Award or the George Munger Award for head coach. 
or I think there's a couple others out there for coach of the year. Um, I think Ryan Day will pretty consistently be a finalist for those things. Anytime you get in the playoffs, you're going to be a finalist. And I think Ohio State's probably a playoff team in 2020. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I don't – I'm, I'm hesitant. I might say no. And part of the reason why – Ed Orgeron won those awards last year, but part of the reason why is because LSU was ridiculously historical in every sense of the word. We're not so, talking about winning. We're not talking about winning. We're just saying finalist. I know, I know, I know. Like, but, like, oh, Ryan Day was in the finalist last year, and Ohio State was one of the best teams in the country. So I think that Coach of the Year awards in most sports are usually reserved for a coach who took a team where they were only supposed to be this good, and he made them – he elevated them to a level they had no business being at. And then guys like Ed Orgeron or even Steve Kerr in the NBA are, are the exceptions when you have an historically great year. But other than that, those awards are reserved for – like Scott Frost when he won it at UCF. UCF wasn't supposed to be undefeated, and yet he had them undefeated. So I think that's why I'm hesitant. I would probably lean no because I don't know when the next time Ohio State is going to be in a position where people aren't expecting them to be in the national championship conversation with Ryan Day as the head coach. Overachievement is important in those coaching awards, especially the ones voted on by the media because it's a roundabout way of saying – uh, we were actually right that your team wasn't that yeah. good and you lifted them up to be better than that instead of saying, oh, how stupid were we to think that your team wasn't going to be good. The Mikey Award for tight end. No, that's, no, that's never happened at Ohio State. I also say no because of the just the volume situation. Place Talent kicker. level, Jim Rucker might be talented enough to be – a guy who should be a finalist, but the way he gets used here, he's not going to be one. The Lou Groza Award for best place kicker. No. I think no. Uh, Outland Trophy, I think Mike Davis will be a finalist, and you think he'll win it, so that's yeah. two yeses for that. Um, and I suppose even Josh Myers could be a finalist for that, or really anybody else on that offensive line. Paul Horning Award for most versatile. I don't know who Ohio State would have that would qualify – for that in the kind of volume you would need in order. I mean, they're going to have some guys oh. who I think move around, but they're going to be so sporadically used. I don't know if they have someone who could get that kind of attention. Yeah, no, I don't. Maybe in the future, now with how they're recruiting that Sam linebacker position. Or, or, unless, right now. or unless it were a position where, like, would Garrett Wilson be – as a receiver and as, as a, a receiver and a returner be involved with that maybe, but yeah. that's maybe the only way I see it. Uh, the Jim Thorpe award for defensive back. Yeah. I think Sean Wade will be a finalist. I think he will too. I think he's, again, I think the preseason hype uh, really helps him, but I think he's also a really good football player. So I think he probably will be uh, the Ray guy award for punters. Yes. I think Drew Christman is going to go. He wasn't as good last year as he was in 2018. I think he has a bit of a bounce back year along with for, with the help of the Gunners, such as Chris Olave. I think, I think he might be a finalist this year. The Remington trophy for center. I already said, Josh Myers, yeah. do you, okay. And then the rest of these are mostly, you know, our, our, our player of the year. So we'll just wrap that up and say Heisman trophy. Will, will Ohio state have a Heisman mm -hmm. trophy finalist? Yes. I agree. I think Justin nice. Fields will again be a Heisman trophy finalist. So, um, obviously, a long way to go between now and then, but uh, that's how we see the awards coming out. Let's go to a Justin Fields question now that we've – oh, what a perfect segue. I didn't even plan that. Uh, from the 330, how many interceptions would Fields have to have to give you guys pause? Another give you pause question. So let's stipulate that give you pause 
doesn't mean you think that Justin Fields should be demoted and or cut from the team and or um, expelled from the state of Ohio or whatever extreme uh, definition of give you pause some people have. We're just saying how many interceptions would Justin Fields have to have to, I guess, make you worried about his regression? So, and I, I, let me finish reading the, I'll finish right. reading the question. Yeah. But I just wanted to say that up front because last time we had to give you pause, it the, all, all yeah. sorts of hell broke loose. 41 touchdowns to three interceptions in 2019. Trevor Lawrence went from having four interceptions in 18 to eight in 19 and knocked him down to the second tier of the Heisman, not invited to New York. I would argue that eight interceptions gave people pause on Lawrence. Let's discuss. I feel it would be incredibly hard for Fields to replicate last year, and I'm not sure I would want him to. If you're not throwing interceptions, you're more than likely not taking shots. I think my number is seven. Is seven. 50 touchdowns to five interceptions would be a Heisman effort. And I think that's a really smart way to look at this. And we've mentioned this before. That, And I said it just in yesterday's pod where we were talking about the idea of Justin Fields' improvement and his efficiency and how I think the interception number – could rise this year, both based on volume of passes taken, but also the way he takes some shots with the receiving core that he has. I think he's going to trust those guys to make some plays. I think it might result in a couple more interceptions. I think this offense can probably sustain them. And I think it's going to be indicative of actual growth in his game in a, in a, in an odd way. It's a way because he's not accurate anymore. It'll be because of some of the, the big shots that he takes. And I think they'll probably hit more of those than get turned into interceptions. So my answer was 10. And I said anything North of 10 would, you know, I would maybe pay a little bit of attention. And obviously if he gets to 15, something's terribly wrong. And I think people start looking at Corey Dennis and and it kind of, you know, justifies all of Doug's you know, thoughts about hiring a guy like Corey Dennis as your quarterback's coach. But anything more than 10, I think it gets a little interesting. And here's why. I looked at the Heisman, the quarterbacks who have won the Heisman since 2000. Jameis Winston in 2013, he threw 10. Jason White in 2003, he threw 10. And Carson Palmer in, 22, in uh, 2002, he threw 10. Those are the only Heisman winners who throw 10. And there's only one Heisman winner who's thrown more than 10, and that's Chris um, Winky, who threw 11 for Florida State in 2000. So if he's throwing double-digit interceptions, he's probably not going to win a Heisman. Let's, let's just – if history shows itself, he's not going to win a Heisman. I think if he gets to eight, I think he's fine, just because – one, because they're going to throw it more, but also how they're going to throw it. Last year, it was a lot of things outside of the numbers – where those out routes where because his arm is so strong and because of what they had in the wide receiver room, he was very good at those. But it wasn't a lot of stuff over the middle like they did in 2018 with Dwayne Hassis. I think we're going to see a lot more of that stuff in 2020, a mixture of that as long with the stuff outside the number. So, yeah, there's the, the usage right there. But also, if he's throwing 10, that means he's 10 or more. That means he's probably got multiple games where he's throwing two or more than that in a game, which it means it's probably hurting them. In those games, he's probably throwing two or more, probably Penn State and Oregon, which we all agree are probably the two toughest games on their schedule this year. And it, if he's throwing more than one interception in a game, it, it's probably costing It's probably a loss. So far, if he's throwing more than one interception in a game, Ohio State has lost. That's the thing here. If he's thrown one or less, they've won. So I think anything more than 10, he's, not a high, he's probably not winning the Heisman, but also – 
he's putting Ohio State in situations where they're probably not going to be able to bounce back from him because the defense isn't nearly as good as it was in 2019. So looking back at Dwayne Haskins in 2018, he had eight interceptions on 533 attempts. So that was an interception rate of 1.5%. Last year, Justin Fields had three interceptions on, I think it was 300 and yeah, 354 attempts, which was about half that rate, about 0.8%. So to, that's the important number to me, more than the pure number of interceptions. It, it's all about the interception rate. And Dwayne Haskins was actually still – Still, that's how good Justin Fields was last year. I mean, you wrote a billion stories about it, mm-hmm. and so did everybody else about how kind of historic his interception numbers were. Although there were guys who throw with a lot more volume, but to keep that interception number that low, have only one going into the national championship game was, or the sorry, <laughs> the college football playoff semifinals. Sorry, have only one going into the that game was really impressive. So I think that I, we all think his attempts are going to go up. He had three fifty four. Dwayne had 533. The midpoint of that is 443. So 443 with a Buckeye talk. I think well, it's going to be. We can't do math. <laughs> I think it's. I think. I think. To, when you say give pause, I guess I would say. I would think you'd have to be more like 12. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's. Because I think it has to be – I know what you're saying. What you're saying makes sense where there's going to have to be games there where that means there's multiple interceptions thrown. But I think as long as Ohio State is winning and I think as, as long as people are seeing the trade-off between an occasional interception on a deep ball and two or three big plays slash touchdowns resulting, I think people are going to probably take that trade off as long as Ohio State keeps winning and as long as the offense stays lethal, as long as you're not just giving away possessions with bad mistakes. So I think in order before you got really concerned about it, I think you'd have to be up into that. And we're talking about for a full season. So you're not getting to this number till late in the year. And, and it, some of these bigger games are later in the year where he had to have a chance to maybe throw some more interceptions, better opponents. So I think you'd have to be really climbing up into that. You'd have to, get pushed past 10 and maybe get up into like 12 before people are worried that something's really wrong. Yeah. Well, that's like I said, anything over 10, I I think if he's at 10, he should be okay, but anything over that, but to the point of, you know, with the, Trevor Lawrence last year is a prime, since Trevor Lawrence is the example here early in the season, he was on pace to have a lot more than just eight interceptions and then he didn't have – and then because he threw, he threw two against Georgia Tech, he threw two against Syracuse, he threw two, two against Louisville, and then he didn't throw one again the rest, of, the rest of the season. And that's part of why Clemson got better is because he stopped throwing interceptions. And I, if, if, you know, you, I think Justin Fields will be the same way where it's as long as he keeps it low. I mean, the occasional one is fine. I agree with you on that note. But if he's having multiple games where he's throwing multiple interceptions, it can't hurt your team. Like we saw it hurt Clemson earlier in the year where they just didn't look as good. And that will be the case, especially with this Ohio State team who doesn't have the de- – it's, it's going to be a, a solid defense, but it's not going to be anywhere near what it was this past season. When you combine that with you're constantly putting your defense back onto the field, then you run into issues. Ohio State's in a similar position that Clemson was last year where it's you want Justin Fields on the field as long as possible, and you want your defense on the sideline as long as possible. If the opposite is happening because you're turning the ball over and putting your defense in, you know, inopportune spots, then it might cost them a game. I'm not going to sit here and say it 100% will, but it might just because this isn't the same defense that's got a strip sack 
master and a guy who's taking away an entire side of the field. I'll also say real quick as we wrap up, um, Trevor Lawrence had whatever they said, eight interceptions in the first however many games last year and only had and had none over the last eight or nine games. Yeah. And one of those numbers is a lot more important than the other one. So that's the other thing to keep in mind is just the context. When do interceptions happen? When in games do they happen? Which opponents do they happen against? Juncture of the game, those sort of things. It's more important than just the sheer number of interceptions. Uh, moving on to a different position at the two one at the from the two oh two. Are we underselling Master Teague? J.K. struggled in the 2018 offense. The run game looked for more north-south. Weber averaged a full yard per carry more than J.K. and generally looked far more comfortable. Then last year's run game was much better geared towards J.K.'s running style. So are we underselling Master Teague based on a poor fit with the run scheme? Might 2020's run game feature more north-south design? My immediate answer to that is no, because Master Teague looked great in the run scheme for most of last season. I mean, he was, people were really excited about Master Teague. It was really just the one matchup with Clemson that where he, he looked pretty poor. So I would say that the problem wasn't the way, wasn't necessarily Ohio State's run scheme. I thought the problem was they were playing one of the best defenses in the country. Also, he looked good, but for context, he looked good against second units and against tired first units. Usually it's not like he was getting guys fresh. And that's part of the thing there. I'll say this. As I wrote earlier this week in a Buckeye take, they don't need Master Teague or Trey Sermon. They don't need them to be what J.K. Dobbins was last year because they're not – I don't think they're going to use their running backs that same way where I don't think there's a game this year where a running back gets the ball 30 times or even in a game this year. I, that's not going to happen. They're not going to use their running backs in a situation where they're going to rely heavily on the run and the passing game is going to complement that. It's going to be the other way around, where they're going to rely heavily on the on Justin Fields' arm and maybe his legs, depending on you know what who they're playing and what time of the game it is. And then the running game is going to complement that, but also the running back in general has to complement that. So the question isn't you know can he run the way J.K. ran last year? It's can he act, can he complement what Justin Fields brings to the table? It's, some of that is, is he going to be a good pass catcher? He's caught four passes in his entire career as Ohio State football player, and those came last year, obviously, when he was on the field. And so can he do that? Can he do what Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was for LSU and what Travis Etienne was for Clemson? Meaning, can he complement your, your top five pick quarterback who's going to throw the ball a lot and be the feature thing of your offense? Can you catch passes? Can you, are you going to drop touchdown passes like J.K. did in the Fiesta Bowl? Are you going to catch those passes? Or are you going to make the most of the opportunities you do have to run the ball? He doesn't need to be a guy where, okay, J.K., we're playing Penn State. You're going to get the ball 25 times. And throughout the game, you're going to wear down the defense, and eventually you're going to break one. They don't need that from their running backs this year. That's what Justin Fields is for. So Master Teague averaged 5.8 yards a carry last year. Marcus Crowley averaged 9.5. Steel Chambers averaged 7.1. I don't think any of those guys are the exact copy of the other. And so it's three different running backs in the backfield. And all of them, again, those are very, very small sample sizes, especially for for, uh, Marcus Crowley and Steel Chambers. But everybody was running the ball with success against those second and third units. So I hesitate to say that it was a run fit situation. I also guess I hesitate to say that Ohio State is going to look to change that a lot anyway in 2020, you know, change the way that they they block for the running scheme and the way that they try to run the ball. I think that it's it's more of a question of the offense as a whole, and I think I, I don't expect the approach to change drastically in that way for 2020. Here's a little bit of a goofy question before we head to break. 
we just finished up the fast food bracket a couple weeks ago with Wendy's coming out triumphantly on top of Chick-fil-A. And a, a, a listener from the 614 asks, why all the hate for Skyline Chili and White Castle? Do you like any foods local to Ohio, Grater's or Jenny's Ice Cream, Chocolate Buckeyes? So I'm going to, I'll go first. I do not have hate for Skyline Chili. I love Skyline Chili. When I would drive from, I think I mentioned this, when I would we lived in Indiana, my best friend lives in Pittsburgh, and I would drive to see him usually once a year, and I would stop around Dayton or stop somewhere around between Dayton and Columbus usually for lunch, usually coming in going and get Skyline Chili. Like, I, I like Skyline Chili. I'm not, people think I'm a food snob, but I do like Skyline Chili. So it's, it's, it's probably only true half the time. I don't like White Castle because the food's not good. Like, I don't, nobody... No, I don't know of anyone who's excited to go to White Castle. I just don't. I don't. It's it's deliberately a cheaper, lesser version of food that appeals to a specific something that people want. Um, I also think it's one of those places that, like, it was one thing back in the day, and then now it's just kind of the name that's lingering on. I feel like they don't try very hard is all I'm saying. I do love Grater's Ice Cream. When I lived in Indianapolis, we lived – uh, a short walk from um, a Grader's place on uh, Illinois Avenue up in the uh, kind of the Butler Tarkington area, not, not too far from Butler university. And we would walk from our condo over there and we made sure that when we did it, it was like during the summer months and we were walking over there because you're getting this big old pile of ice cream and you got to walk those calories off somehow. So um, we do, I do love Grader's ice cream. I can't say I've had Jenny's, but I've heard great things. So, Three out of four, I'm, I'm fully supporting it here. I, and I'm not going to support White Castle simply because it's Columbus-based or Ohio-based. Let, let's, let's find a little effort, guys. I love Graders. love Graders ice cream. I don't like White Castle because it's terrible food. The only good thing about White Castle is Harold and Kumar. Skyline <laughs> is by far the worst food I've ever had here. And there is no way you're going to convince me otherwise. I've had it on multiple occasions. I've spent a good amount of time in Cincinnati eating the Skyline in Cincinnati. I do not like Skyline, and there's no way you're going to change my mind on that. I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings, but this is how I feel. Uh, this is my truth. I, re I would ra rather not eat dinner if somebody said the only option we have is Skyline. You would eat. I, that's a, would you eat White Castle before you ate Skyline? I might. Hmm. No, I th actually, I think I would just go hungry that night. Yeah, <laughs> this I, reminds I, me, I will say, like, I think Arby's got pretty far in our competition. I think Arby's is one of those places that people have, at least in the Midwest, a fairly favorable appreciation yeah, of as I far guess. as fast food goes. And yet there's an episode of The Simpsons where they're doing kind of this Lord of the Flies thing where a bunch of school kids get stranded on an island. And there's this girl who says – I'm so hungry, I could eat at Arby's. And all the kids go, ooh. No. And ever since I saw that, I was like, because I love The Simpsons, but I'm like, wait a second, what's wrong with Arby's? Like, Arby's isn't like White Castle. Arby's isn't like one of these, you know, places where, again, like, it, it doesn't even seem like solid food, the hamburger patties at White Castle. It's like, they, it's like they took something out of a can and smeared it on a bun. So, I again, I'm not going to back a local place just because it's I, – I came from here from – I lived in Lafayette, Indiana for a long time. There's a local pizza place there called Arnie's, and I've, I know people who are associated with Arnie's, and everybody there loves it, but I, I just can't get there. Like, to me, it was always, like, second-rate food. Like, and if, if 
I'm not going to just root for you because you're the local guy. Like you, you've still got to step up and do it. I hope no, people I, think of us the same way. Probably. Yeah. No, I hate white castle. Now I will say this. Here's some, I like late night slice pizza, which they actually have a place now, which I did. I didn't live here for a little bit guys. So I didn't really, the last time I lived here before I got this job was a teenage years. And back then it was a food truck. So they have a place. I love late night slice. That's I think my favorite pizza place of non chain restaurant places. North star cafe is pretty good. I don't know if that's local though. It might be. But the, I'm a big food truck guy, and Columbus has a lot of festivals in the summer. Obviously, none of those festivals are going to happen this summer because, you know, coronavirus decided, decided to take away our summer. Thanks, coronavirus. But there's a lot of festivals, one of which is a food truck festival, and I love going around all those food trucks. I just love food truck food. I don't know why. I just love it. There was a food truck um, on North High Street um, in the parking lot where local bar is. It, used to be, it was there all last summer. They had, they had the best chicken quesadilla I have ever had in my life. Now I can't find it. So if the person who owns that food truck is listening to this podcast, first of all, thank you for listening. Sign up for the text. Second of all, please bring that food truck back. And if you don't want to put it on North High Street, then bring it out to Dublin where I live, and I will eat there three times a week. I promise. So I will say also for, for people questioning my support of Ohio eateries, during quarantine, the only place other than Cane's, which is technically Louisiana based, and we've had Cane's, I think, just one time, but every other place we've gotten carryout from has been a local establishment. We have not gone to any national chains. We have not done any national fast food. It's all been, as far as we can tell, local Columbus restaurants, either here in our neighborhood or us driving into one of the adjacent neighborhoods and getting something there. So that's been a something that we've like committed ourselves to do it's been an intentional thing we want to help people out around here but also there's some really darn good food in columbus it's one of my favorite things about living here we found some really great stuff and um i don't want to name check them all here because we're running short on time but great stuff here and uh we're definitely trying to support those people and hopefully they're all back on their feet really soon so we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back in the second half less nonsense there we're just going to burn through uh, a couple more football related questions here on buckeye talk all right, we're back. It's a rapid fire edition. We have not been that rapid so far. We've really been drawing these out on the first few questions. So uh, we'll see how these go as we wrap up on the back half of the Friday pod. Uh, this question comes from, as I like to say, my old stomping grounds, the 317. Big Ten fans, and especially Buckeye fans, and I'm curious if this is being said by an Ohio State fan or someone who is not an Ohio State fan but subscribes to our texts anyway, have hated the SEC, quote, we just beat each other up, quote, concept for years. Did this very concept cost the Buckeyes a national title last year, finishing with Penn State, Michigan, and Wisconsin, fields banged up, sluggish first half against Wisconsin, costing a number one seed in the playoff? Did we just experience, so I guess they're saying we, so they are an Ohio State fan, did we just experience what we've been reluctant to recognize in the SEC over the years? Do you understand the question they're asking, and what is your response? Possibly, um, just because after that Rutgers win, I think Jordan Fuller came out and said that they have, they compared the rest of the season to March Madness, where it was six games against quality tournament level teams, playoff level teams. And you come out, you win every one of those games, you're going to win a national championship. That was the idea behind it, which it sort of was. You had Penn State, Michigan, you know, Big Ten, uh, Penn State, Michigan, Big Ten championship, college football semifinal national championship game. So possibly, but at the end of the day, the biggest, the biggest key to all of this is, Ryan Day ran a play at the end of the Penn State game that he didn't have to run. 
you know you have a quarterback who likes to make plays. Well, when you have a quarterback that likes to make, make plays, two bad things can happen. One, turnovers can seem to happen. Justin Fields fumbled sometimes last season, or he can throw an interception. He didn't really throw interceptions until the Clemson game, where that's when it became a problem. Or he can get hurt. And against Penn State, that's what happened. He got hurt. He didn't get to practice a full week before the Big Ten championship game. Because of that, Ryan Day admitted that in that press conference afterward. He was not fully healthy going into the Clemson game, which limited his mobility and limited some of the things that Ohio State could do with him. So, Sure, from a competitive standpoint, you can sit here and say that Ohio State fans experience the the SEC get beat up on during your conference schedule mentality. But what it boils down to is Ryan Day ran a play for Justin Fields that he shouldn't have run. So I don't believe that what happened last year is equivalent to what SEC fans talk about for a number of reasons. Number one, when SEC fans are making this statement, about how they get they have this meat grinder all season. Well, number one, SEC teams go ahead and win the national championship. Alabama wins national championships. An SEC schedule didn't stop LSU from winning a national championship. So it's kind of a dumb argument to begin with. But number two, when the, the, the point that Ohio State fans were trying to make last year wasn't that the schedule overall was too tough. It was that they had gotten the shaft with the way the schedule was drawn up and had to finish so strong which is a different argument than what the SEC is trying to say about having a week-by-week grind. Um, now, and obviously the other reason why the SEC's argument is is foolish is because they go out and buy a glorified scrimmage every year to play before their big final game of the regular mm-hmm. season. Not all of them, but several of them. It's embarrassing. And so for any number of factors, I don't feel like it, it's, it's equitable. And I also remind people, I said this at the time, the, the, big, the Ohio State fans who were complaining about the way the schedule finished – Imagine if it hadn't finished that way, and if you flip the Penn State game two weeks earlier when Chase Young is serving his suspension, isn't that in the long run potentially a bigger threat to how far that team gets than having to finish with those games, those strong games in a row? Like, could they still have beaten Penn State in a game that was that close without Chase Young? I don't know. I I think that's a very legitimate question to ask. We've asked it before. So I guess my advice is, Sometimes the schedule doesn't work out to perfection the way you wish it could. You're not a high school who gets to go out and design your schedule maybe in, in a way that's more equitable to what you alone want. It, it has to do with what balances out through the whole conference. So tough luck. It, 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 it's, this is, it, it's also, you know, again, there's, there's people out there who say, well, the regular season is its own tournament. You get through the regular season. That's how you eliminate teams. Well, Ohio State – persevered through the the regular season of this elimination tournament that people kind of de facto elimination tournament that people think is out there. Uh, Did it, was it, did it make it harder than if the schedule had been them playing uh, Maryland and Rutgers in the last two weeks? Sure it did. But then guess what happens? Then you go into the West, the Wisconsin game in the big 10 tournament and your starters haven't played a second half in two weeks. And then you come out sluggish in that game and people blame that for it. I think people look for excuses sometimes. And I don't know that this one was very legitimate. And until the Big Ten gets, as we said a couple of weeks on this ago on this program, until the Big Ten is stronger top to bottom, they can't really make that same argument that the people in the SEC do about the, the, the schedule being the same kind of meat grinder. Just because it was true for Ohio State for a couple of weeks doesn't make it true for an entire season. No, I don't think – I think it's just more they're speaking to, you know, yeah, the, the, the SEC plays a game that doesn't make any sense before the I think the idea of – the SEC has made it always seem like every week you might lose a game. 
And I think the, the idea of that's what Ohio State was put through to close out its regular season against – For two weeks. Not for right. – not even for a well, month. Not even – no, not, not for two weeks. I, they, they almost lost the Wisconsin game. Michigan, I mean, obviously – Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. But, okay, but hold on a second. The SEC mm-hmm. argument ends at the end of the regular season, really, because then the SEC goes and plays a conference championship game, same as the Big Ten does, and then the winner of that is typically in the playoffs, same as with the Big Ten. So there it starts to equalize. The Big Ten has to – we're really just talking about – the Big Ten fans are trying to say that having to play Penn State and Michigan back-to-back might be equitable. Not all Ohio State fans are saying this. This one fan is saying it. Maybe that not that equitable, equitable, but to, idea, not equitable, but just an idea of what it's like to play in the SEC. Not, not even saying it's equal, just saying that that's a, a, a Big Ten version of what it would be like to play in the SEC. Man, I, I just can't go that far. And I guess if, if, if there are fans who thought that last year, then I hope they're the ones who step up and say that Thank God we don't. We only have to play Illinois in the last game of the regular season, and then play Michigan at home. Boy, didn't that help us out! I don't expect anybody to step up and say that because it's just the schedule this year. The Big Ten schedule changes every year. Uh, maybe uh, get over it a little bit is what I'm saying. Um, here's a question for you because it's kind of a recruiting question. I think you can give us some insight uh, from the three three zero. Who is better, Jack Sawyer or JT Tuamaloau? Two defensive uh, end prospects. Yeah, yeah, JT Tumaloao is the number two player in the country and the number two strong side defensive end in the country. And Jack Sawyer is the number three player in the country and the number three strong side defensive end in the country. And just for, you know, a little bit of clarity, the number one player in the country and the number one strong side defensive end in the country is Corey Foreman, who just decommitted from Clemson. So basically the top three players in the country all play the same position. This is not an easy question to answer um, because they're very different in some ways, Jack Sawyer is only is six foot, three, six foot five, 220 pounds. If you've ever seen Jack Sawyer in person right now, he looks like a basketball player more than a football player. He's long and lanky. His body type, it, it, it's pretty similar to what Zach Harrison's is. It's, it's different than what maybe Larry Johnson is used to getting for five-star defensive ends at Ohio State with guys like Chase Young and Nick Bosa and Joey Bosa and Ty, guys who look like, oh, yeah, they're going to be pretty special. I'm not saying that those – that Zach Harrison and Jack Sawyer aren't that. It's just a different body type to get used to. Jack has – I've seen Jack play in person. He's got a, a great get-off, which, which is pretty scary. We've seen what that can do for, for a defensive lineman, i.e. Chase Young. Not saying he's going to Chase Young, but the, the, the idea of his get-off of, of the, on the ball is, is pretty solid. But he's also a basketball player, and he's – Pretty, you see that athleticism transfer over and for him as a defensive lineman. Tom Molau is also a basketball player, and he also plays both sides of the ball. Jack Sawyer played quarterback last year for a team. He's strictly playing defensive end this 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 fall in order to get ready for Ohio State. While JT, he played some tight end in high school and was like a goal line catching goal line fades for touchdowns for his high school last season. And, but he's a bigger guy. He's six foot four and a half, two hundred and seventy-seven pounds. At this point, it's more power than finesse. While with Jack Sawyer, I think it's the opposite. And it, it, what makes it hard is JT's done the whole camp circuit, so he's got a chance. You've gotten a chance to maybe see him go up against some of the other good, best, good guys in the country. While with Jack Sawyer, he lives fifteen minutes away from the best defensive line coach in America. And so his idea is, I'm not. Why would I go do all? Why would I travel all around the country wasting money to go? to all these different camps when I can just drive 20 minutes from my house to the Woody athletic 
facility and go work with LJ for the day. And you, I saw it last summer when he would come to camps and not just be with LJ, but he would be the practice dummy that Larry Johnson would use when explaining drills to other people. So I don't know who's necessarily better. I think if I'm going to say better, maybe Jack Sawyer right now, just because he has the edge of playing the position his entire high school career, while JT is, is a defensive tackle who's moving to defensive end for a senior year so he can play it at the college level. So I'd probably give the edge to Jack just because he's been playing the position longer. But they're not similar players, so it's kind of hard to just say, oh, this style is better than that style when we've seen both work. Jack Sawyer's been committed to Ohio State for ages now. JT Tuimaloao yeah. has three of the four crystal ball predictions for the Buckeyes on 24-7 sports. What's your sense of how that's going to end up? JT's taking the Zach Harrison approach as far as how he's handling his commitment. It's long and he's not talking to anybody, but if the crystal balls are, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to go about it in a world where a lot of, you know, kids love to love the spectacle of it, which is fine. It's interesting to see a 17 year old go the other direction and decide. And some of that is their parents advising them to do that. And some of that just may be their personality. So it's good for him for doing that. But, all indications are that Ohio State's going to land an, another top five player in the country. Moving on to another positional question. This is for uh, current Buckeyes from the 614. Would either of you trade one of the top three freshman wide receivers, having virtually no college experience, for a current Ben Victor or Austin Mack? This makes for a good experience versus talent discussion. That's coming from Evan in Oregon. And I guess so what they're asking is, would you trade one of the these – one of the top three freshman wide receivers. Now, again, they don't specify which they're putting in the top three. I'm so going to guess by rankings, it would be Julian Fleming, Jackson Smith, and Jigba, and G. Scott, especially since Mookie Cooper didn't play football last year. I, I think that's probably what they mean also because they're talking about outside receivers and G. Scott yeah. seems very locked in uh, inside. So one of those three guys, would you trade their inexperience to get Ben Victor or Austin Mack, someone who did not flash that consistent ceiling that people think may come from one of those guys but for 2020 would give you another experienced reliable solid option on the outside opposite of Chris Olave and in the mix with Garrett Wilson in the slot no I would not do that and here's why we've seen what Ben Victor and Austin Max ceiling looks like and listen it's, it's great that they have experience but the the ceiling isn't high and why would I want to watch what I saw in 2019 again in 2020 when yeah Julian Fleming and Jackson Smith and Jigba and G Scott and I'll throw Mookie Cooper in there as well they haven't done anything at the college level but at least the ceiling is already higher of how good they can be even as true freshmen Garrett Wilson was a five-star receiver as a true freshman and he had a pretty decent year last year to the point that the season hasn't started yet. We're already th- having discussions of whether or not he could be one, the, be the best wide receiver in the country in 2021 and win the Belitnikoff Award. And Julian Fleming and Jackson Smith and Jigmore are both five-star receivers, and G. Scott looks like he's 25. So I, I'm not going to trade that for a guy where I know what he's going to bring, while with the other one of the other three guys, there's optimism of how good they can be. And to me, it's also not necessarily – the matter of, of, of this trade, which I assume means you're, 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 you're taking this guy out of the program and getting to get one more year. That's how I'm reading it to get one more year out of one of those two seniors from last mm-hmm. year. 
I think that's too much of a trade to make. But then also, it's not just a matter of that player that you would either be taking out or pushing down. You're also taking away options from someone like Jameson Williams. You're taking away, again, other guys who have a lot of development left, have a lot of ceiling to reach for, for somebody who is, while they were productive players and I think useful players, had really kind of reached their ceiling as college football players. And I'm going to, I'm for this season even, in the expectations that you want to reach in 2020, I still think you're, you're banking on somebody from that group being able to reach those expectations sooner than expected. You've got so many options there and they don't have to be the primary option either. It'd be one thing if you were just, if you were, if all you had were these freshman receivers, would you maybe say, Oh, we really wish we could pull back, you know, reverse red shirt. One of those seniors from last year, would you maybe say that? I suppose, but you've got, a reliable option in Chris Olave. You've got what looks like a reliable option in Garrett Wilson. So this this third spot on the outside, you don't need absolutely a – you're not counting on that the same way that you are if there were no other veteran receivers. No, because you've got Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson who are going to play anywhere from 85 to 70% of the snaps, while the other side is probably Julian Fleming and G. Scott Jr. rotating or Jalen Harris maybe gets into the mix. All right, and wrapping things up on the what we decided to call it Friday fights. Yeah, Friday night fights. Frantic Fridays. Well, it's not yeah. night. It's never night yeah, when we record it, well, and I don't even know true. if it's night when people listen to this. But uh, the true. Friday fights, the Friday light fights, because we're we're such lightweights, something like that. Two questions I think go hand in hand uh, from the nine seven eight. What will you guys miss when Doug comes back? And from the two one six. From your first year or so on the beat, what's the funniest or weirdest behind-the-scenes story you have about Doug that you can share? That's from Joseph in Atlanta. What I'm going to miss the most about Doug coming back is I've noticed that I can, as the person who edits the pod, and I'm I'm ready to abdicate that back to him as much as he wants to take it. But when I goof up or when I have one of these like ums that like draws out too long or I have this weird habit of when I start to talk after you've been talking, it makes this little like lip slap sound. I can go in and trim all those out. I sound so much better when I have full control over the sounds that my mouth makes getting out into the world when I can go back in and edit them. And I don't have that when he's in charge, he gets to edit it however he wants or just not edit it at all. So that'll be one thing I'm just gonna have to be cleaner about in the future is, is talking in a cleaner way. Cause I won't have myself to rely on going in and chopping everything up. Um, and I don't have, I don't think I have any like great behind the scenes stories. I think, and, and one of the things to appreciate about Doug Lay Maurice is I feel like he's an open book. I feel like he comes on and talks about whatever would be like some kind of embarrassing behind the scenes story. He's probably told it on the podcast, right? Probably. Yeah. Um, I do have a story, um, which I think was pretty funny. It's actually, I, I will always refer to it as my first Doug experience. Your so, first what, Doug, experience? My, my first Doug experience. Oh, okay. Just okay. my first experience of who Doug LaMaurice is as a human being walking around this planet. And I think it's the greatest thing in the world. So we're in Lansing after the Michigan State game, you know, writing, getting ready to pod, all the fun stuff that we do after we watch a game for two and a half hours. And we're just discussing whatever. And I think Michigan State that year was, I think, the second – it was either second or third game I covered because it was I covered Nebraska and then we went on the road for uh, the Maryland game. No, it was the second game because the first game would have been 
with Nebraska, and then we went to Lansing the following week, and then we went to Maryland. Yeah. And so we're sitting there writing our stories, and somebody else comes out and, you know, saying goodbye, whatever, and they go, are you guys going to the Maryland game the following weekend? And <laughs> Doug is awesome, man. The way it, it, he took such offense to somebody asking him this, and he was right to do so because Doug's been on this beat for almost 20 years, and I'm pretty sure he's been to every game except for like one or two, and that's because he had, you know, personal family situations going on. And the way he chewed this person out was – I'd heard stories about we, – we, I mean, you guys listen to this podcast, so you know how Doug is. I've heard stories of how Doug is, but I've never actually seen it. And to see it in person and to be in such an awe of the way he chewed this person out, it was so similar – to the Oregon pod. No, it wasn't similar to that because it wasn't bad. It was actually pretty funny. But it's just him going, am I going to the Maryland game? I have been to every game on this beat since 2006. Yeah, he, just, he went on for about 15 to 20 minutes because he was so upset about this. And from that day on, I've known who Doug Maurice was. So shout out to you, Doug. You were right once again to act the way you did. And Ever since then, I've known who Doug Lane Maurice was, man. That was, that's my, that was my first Doug interaction in the year and a half that I've been doing this. I have not seen an incident quite to that level, but I will say this. Our readers have, have some of you who have been texting in saying, looking forward to Doug coming back. He'll be back on the pod on Monday, though, again, only half of it because we, we, we pre-recorded. Monday's going to be like the transitional pod between furloughs because we pre-recorded the first half of – the when will Michigan beat Ohio State pod with Doug. And now Stephen and I are going to record the second half talking about the answers that we got from our tech subscribers. And that's the transition by which Doug is returning to the podcast for the rest of next week. And then Stephen is leaving on his furlough. So they're passing in the night next week so on the Monday furloughs. pod. We, we understand that uh, a lot of the following of, of Buckeye Talk comes from what uh, Doug has built up over the years. And uh, a lot of you guys are excited to have him back next week. And I appreciate that. Doug will be back on Monday talking about the big question. When will Michigan beat Ohio state? So will Steven and I, and it'll be a lot of really good answers from our tech subscribers. So please come back for that. That was Buckeye talk.